Beloved, if you have your Bible there with you this morning, turn with me to the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. I'll be reading from verse 1 down to verse 19, but don't worry, I won't be preaching that. We'll be preaching today from verse 10 to verse 9. 19. That's what it meant. Saw the confused looks there. I am Irish. We get things mixed up. Okay, let me read it to you for long in your Bible, and then we'll look at what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing so, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison as though you yourself were in prison with them, and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily with them. Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed is to be kept undefiled, because God will judge the sexually, immoral, the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. For what can man do to me? Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings. Isn't it? But I want this person to be in heaven. I don't want them to live under the ignorance and the foolishness to believe that if they continue in the religious system... That somehow, in some way, God's going to say, well, you tried. Well done. You must be born again, the Bible says. And if a person isn't born again, they're not with us. The Bible, Jesus himself said, if you're not with us, then you are against us. And so here he is telling them that, that those of the world system, they don't share the same rights that we do. They do not participate participate. In the blessings that we have. And then he goes on. And he uses a, a, an imperfect analogy here. He, he, um, he mixes up his metaphors. He talks about the tabernacle. The tent of meeting. That thing that Moses constructed. Remember that big tent that the, they walked around in the desert. They put the tent and the, they established their camp. And then he, in the same verse he talks about the city. Jerusalem. And how Jesus died outside the city. And he's mixing his metaphors. But we get what he's talking about. That our Lord Jesus Christ didn't participate in the worldly religion. He didn't join it. I mean, they have their religious system. But Jesus died apart from that system. The Jews had their lambs, the blood. Remember the high priest would go into the holy place with his basin of blood and his broomstick and he would splash the blood on everything do you remember that and remember that on the the crucifixion day that, that as he jesus died and in the same moment that jesus died the high priest would have been in the holy place in jerusalem with his broomstick of blood with the great wall curtain of separation behind him a wall of material as thick as two men's hands and as he started splashing that blood, 
the Bible says the curtain was rent, torn in two from the top to the bottom as if someone with two giant hands took it and ripped it apart. Signifying that the age of separation was over, that God had stepped through, that God had achieved what man could never do, that God had reconciled sinner, turned a sinful people to a nation of saints. So he's here in this point talking about those things. And he's using the idea of a sacrifice, that of Jesus being our sacrifice. Jesus being the, the, the object of our worship. Through him, by him, because of him, we have reconciliation and access to the presence of God. And he says here in verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. The idea, of course, is that when the sacrifice was made, uh, there were two parts from Leviticus. There was the, the scapegoat and the lamb of, of sacrifice. So they would, you, what you would do is you, there would be a lamb and then there would be a baby goat. The lamb they would kill and they would drain the blood and it would be the atonement. It would be the symbol of Christ dying in your place. And then there was a goat, the, the scapegoat, the scapegoat. A scapegoat just means the escape goat. And you would put your hands on that little baby goat and symbolically all of your guilt, all of your, your, the separation between you and God would be transferred. It didn't really happen. It was a symbol onto the goat. And then they took that baby goat and they chased it out into the wilderness. Out of the camp. It would be set free. They would drive it away. And that symbolized that your sin was now gone from the sight of God, from the presence of God. It was, you were set free from it, delivered from your guilt. And those are two aspects of the same sacrifice of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He created this access, atonement, satisfaction between us and God. He reconciled us, restored a relationship, but also He took our guilt he took our sin and he separated it from us. As far as the east is from the west, so I have removed your sins from you. You were once as red as scarlet, but now you're as white as wool. Atonement, reconciliation, guiltlessness. And here he's making, he's pointing to those things, reminding, refreshing the mind, but also helping them to see that, that when the leftover was done, it was there was the separation. It was driven out. It was the, the, the carcasses were burned outside the city. And he's saying in this verse that, as, that even the refuge, even the leftovers, even the parts that, that had no purpose in the sacrifice still speak to us. That they regarded the leftover meat that they just burned up in the, the, the Valley of Gehenna as a... As nothing, but he's saying here that those represent Jesus Christ. And there, therefore, if Jesus Christ had no problem being treated as refuge, as worthless and suffering outside, then we too, as his people, should have no shame of being excluded. He was, he's encouraging them not to be afraid. If the people are going to put you out, if your walk with Christ, your identification with Jesus, you belonging to Him, 
puts you in a situation where you're no longer part of the people. Don't worry about it. That's how it is. And he goes to verse 12 is the therefore. This is what becomes, this is what happens because of the verses before it. Therefore, as Jesus also suffered outside the gate that he might sanctify the people of his own blood. I love that. That statement there. Sanctify my Bible or to make holy. You're a holy people. That's crazy. In God, when God looks at me, he says, well, Kyle, you don't know me. You don't know me, Kyle. I have my sins. You know? But we are to go outside the camp. We're not to be afraid or to be intimidated. We're not to be those who feel deeply ashamed of our association with the Lord Jesus Christ. But rather that we are to boldly go wherever he is, I want to go. Wherever he's doing, I want to be with them. I want to be a part of him. And if he is not a part of worldly religion, if he's not a part of the ah, or the ah, it's just, you know, same thing, different tune. I have no need or desire to be there to do these, this worldly religion, this ceremonies or rituals. I desire to be where Jesus is. I desire to be a participant in his worship, not in the, the outworkings of worldly religion and the worldly regulations, the worldly ten commandments, which is only one. You shall not be judgmental. You shall be kind. We are always kind. But we stand together with Christ. So here in this, he's saying, because Christ died for us, because we are part of the true and real people of God, let us not be overly concerned of what the people in the world think or our worldly brothers and sisters, those who claim to be Christians, but their lives are Christless. They're godless. They're full of strange fire and misunderstandings, full of weird teachings. Human regulations. Let us stand together with Christ. Let us associate with Him. You know, you become who you hang out with. Did you know this? If you hang out with strong people, you become strong. You hang out with intelligent people, you're supposed to become intelligent, or at least look like it at least, you know. Successful people breed successful people. Unsuccessful people breed unsuccessful people. Birds of a feather, feather, excuse me, the the old saying, the old proverb, the old old, old Ordsbrook, birds of a feather flock together. And if you belong to Christ, you want to be with Christ. You don't need all the well, the whistles and bells. You don't need the, the disco lights, the, 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 the false smoke. You don't need a rock band to associate with Jesus. You just need Jesus. And for Jesus, that's just enough. Come and be with me. So beloved, the preacher, the pastor, the speaker, the writer, the, the Holy Spirit through that person, speaking to the church here, down throughout all the years to you and to me, they're exhorting us to be together with Christ. Let's go outside the worldly system of religion. Let us bear the disgrace. That was a strong word. The humiliation. You see, 
It is glorious to be with Christ. And it satisfies our souls. It makes us whole as people, as a Christian people. But there is a cost. There is a cost to following Jesus. The people of the world are not going to stand by and go, Oh, you're so good. Go, go for it, girl. Boy, yeah, man, high five. They will look at you and they will, they will despise you. As they despised our Savior. Think of the, the scriptures about the suffering servant. That he took upon himself all of our burdens. All of our transgressions were laid upon him. And they despised him. He is our shepherd. He is our, uh, the Holy Spirit. His Spirit has been given to us. It lives within us. And as we associate together with Him, yes, He is successful. Yes, He is prosperous. Yes, He is righteous. But in the eyes of the world, all those things are despicable. The people of this world, though they like Jesus... Because what they could get from them. Do you remember the feeding of the 5,000? I think it was, or the 7,000. The thousands. And then the next day, all the people gathered again. And Jesus says, why are you coming to me? And they were like, oh, Lord, we're just you know, hanging out. They know you're only coming to me because I fed you yesterday. And today you're again hungry. You just want what you can get from me. You're looking for the worldly blessings and the bling. But you don't care about righteousness. You don't care about God. You just want the love of material things. And beloved, there is a, an aspect of our belonging to Jesus that we must carry the weight of the disgrace of Him. And Jesus warned, didn't He? How often have you read in the Gospels where Jesus said that there was a burden, a weight to the cross, that there was a price to following Him? And here in the text, we are reminded of the price of worshipping Jesus. Apart from worldly religion. We bear that disgrace. Do we do it like, oh Lord, oh it's so heavy. We do it wonderfully. So Jesus said, come take on me my yoke for it is light and easy to bear. It's better to be with Jesus than in the courts of kings and princes and to be alone or under the worldly system or together with the devil. And then he says in verse 14, For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one that is to come. And beloved, you and I, we don't have a special place in this world to worship. We don't have a, a pope or a, a cardinal. We have no holy city, Rome or Constantinople, or is it called Istanbul? It's hard for me because I, I read history and I never remember which one's which. But you understand. We have no Mecca. We have no holy place in this world. Why? Because the kingdom of our God goes beyond this earthly realm. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He is the great high conqueror of the galaxy. The cosmos is His. And His throne is in heaven. And therefore, we do not tie ourselves to this world or the systems of this world but rather, we are waiting for one that is to come. He has promised that He shall return. He has promised that He shall establish His kingdom. He has promised that He shall catch up and redeem. And we shall rule together with Him. Now, all the promises of the first coming came true. I don't know if you know it. But all the promises in the Old Testament about the, 
the, the coming of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ from his birth, his conception to his death, all of those in the Old Testament came true. But there's still about 600 more that have to be fulfilled about the second coming of Christ. And as those first 400, it was really 300 and something, but I can't remember the number, but we'll say 400, promises to do with the, the first coming were fulfilled, so shall it be with the second and you and I, we don't, we're not tied to this place. Our longing isn't for, for the things of this world, for the glory, for the applause, for the clap on the back. We long for a kingdom that is to come. And that should be our longing. And here he's reminding us of that fact. Why are you so downhearted when you have to suffer for Jesus? Why are you surprised when the people of this world turn against you when you stand up for righteousness? Why do you feel so lost and homeless when our home isn't in this world? It is for the kingdom that is to come. Beloved, be strong in your spirit. Worship God with spirit, in spirit and in truth with great desire. And then he carries on. Um, Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of the lips that continually confess his name. What we say is very important. When we confess his name, it's not like, you know, when I was in the old world, when I was a Pentecostal and I was taught to use the name of Jesus after almost every in Jesus' name. Oh Lord, in Jesus' name. And we would pray such things and we would carry on in such a way. And it's not saying that. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that as long as it's done reverently and not taking the Lord's name in vain. But we are to constantly in our daily lives be a people who are centered upon him that recognize and realize that everything that we have in our life is from him the good and the bad and that in all things the lord is our helper remember what it said in verse um, six the lord is my helper i will not be afraid for what can man do to me and therefore it should bring a response of joy of rejoicing well, Kyle, I'm from Finland and we're very quiet. We're not like, woohoo! We're like, woohoo! I had to once instruct our American brothers who came here and they thought, does anyone ever talk? I'm like, sometimes it's hard to get them to shut up. Should I have a membership meeting? Oh my goodness. And I had to explain the whole thing to them. They all thought you were asthmatics. <laughs> no. What does that mean? It can mean lots of things. It means yes, no, maybe, I agree. Whole sentences and paragraphs in that. Depends how he does it. You know? And they were like, that's so crazy. There is power in what we say. And we are required to be people who praise God. Who give God the glory in our own lives. And are constantly rejoicing because we understand with clear sight what God has done for us. The blood of Jesus has sanctified us and we have no access. We are reconciled together with God. We have access to the throne. We don't have to have a priest. We don't have to have a bishop. We don't have to have a pope. We don't have to kill an animal. We don't have to do a magic dance. We don't have to say, We turn and God is there. He's closer to us than a heartbeat. 
He's more involved in our lives than we are. We should live in the assurance of that. But beloved, there is the requirement as you worship Him that you give thanks and that you acknowledge Him and you do what you do not because of you think it's right. Well, I just think it's right. You do it because you do it unto the glory of God. You do it that He might receive praise. You do it in order that you acknowledge that you're but His servant, His child. And you're doing these things not because you think it's right in your own eyes. Because He Himself has said, The Lord God has said. Jesus has said. The Bible says. And therefore I believe it and do it. Says here in verse 16, don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. We don't offer up sheep or goats or doves or sacks of grain or bottles of oil. I don't want everyone next week coming with a bottle of olive oil or rapeseed coming up. Here's my offering, this is my worship, Kyle. No, but the outcome of our lives. The supporting and sheltering and caring for one another in small, invisible ways. Sometimes we're called to do big things, but being there for someone, phoning someone. Are you okay? Do you need anything? Is there anything I can do for you? Seeing something that someone has a need in their life and you quietly, secretly, concealed, like a thief in the night, going and helping them. I remember a lady who once lost her husband and the bank was uh, threatening to take their house. Her husband died of cancer and the bank was threatening to take the house. And the religious community to which she belonged to got together secretly by night and they filled a suitcase full of money and they took it to her front door and they left it there. She came out the next morning and there was the, the, the deficit of the loan that she needed to keep her house. They didn't make a big thing out of it. Didn't know. The money just appeared. The woman's not an overly religious person. She's a normal woman. Sometimes we are called to, be, to act so that our, our right hand doesn't know what our left hand is doing. But we do it not for our name's sake, but for His name's sake. That He might be glorified. That our sacrifice, that which costs us time and effort, might please God. No one might ever see it. No one might ever see your efforts or know what you've done behind the scenes or what you've had to give of yourself, your time, your money, your effort. May never be applauded. May never be acknowledged. But God sees in heaven. And when the books are opened and the records are shown, God will receive glory. That is an acceptable sacrifice. That's what God has called you to do. To love one another and to care for one another. It's the reason why our church is called Agape Church. For we realize and recognize that the greatest demonstration of our faith, the Bible says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the Agape love. Strong, loving, giving. And then Jesus said, that was the, the vertical, not the horizontal, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. By doing this, you have completed, made perfect all the law. So we understand and know that we can't really love God until we begin to love one another. Because if we say that we love Him, but hate our brothers, we make ourselves to be liars and there's no truth within us. He goes on, 
Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now whether this is religious leaders or secular leaders, doesn't matter. There is a thing in us, isn't there, a human being quality that we, we, we like to grumble, we like to moan, we like to point fingers and say, well, I could do better. Maybe not say it out loud, but we say it in our hearts. Dissatisfaction. Miss Noya. Where we're able to say, oh, I wouldn't, know. I wouldn't have done it that way. I don't understand. We snip. Bible here commands us as Christians, as believers, as followers of Jesus, of those who are worshipping him, not to have that critical spirit, not to have a spirit that snips and, and even though you might be outwardly obedient, inwardly you're not. You're just waiting for a moment to say, I told you so. I told you so. Bible says be obedient. Now that's not being blind, not falling into disobedience, not, you know, in the, in, during the Nuremberg trials after the Second World War when they tried lots of Nazis for war crimes and lots of the, the, the men who were tried, they said, I was just following orders. I committed terrible atrocities. I butchered men, women and children. Turned them into malachet. But I was just obeying orders and therefore you can't hold me responsible. Really? Really? It's not that kind of obedience, blind obedience that commits atrocities or disobediences. We obey our leaders in the paths of righteousness. But if they were to try and lead us, then they're not our leaders. They are not of us. We do not follow them. We do not recognize them. It says, obey them and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls. And here, someone once said to me, being a pastor is great. And it would be the best lifestyle if it wasn't for the people in the church. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's true. You know, I can't express the many times I have woken up early and gone to bed late with my care, worry, prayer, life stuff. It wears you down and wears you out. And there's nothing more wonderful than to having a, a mature con- congregation. I have been very blessed. The Lord has given me you guys. And for the most part, you guys are wonderful. Yeah. And, and, you know, but I have a, a Pentecostal pastor friend who said to me, you know, I look at your church and it makes me want to become reformed. <laughs> because he said there's nothing in his view, there's nothing more attractive than a reformed congregation that's mature, that doesn't have all the infighting, backbiting sin that's going on there. You have a people who love God and are desiring to follow him. Not a bunch of sheep, or not a bunch, sorry, not a bunch of goats running around biting one another, headbutting each other. Beloved, as part of your worship, be a good Christian in church. Support your leadership. Support them and pray for them. Work together with them. For by doing so, you are worshiping God and blessing His work, helping it to go on. For one day... Those of us who lead, those of us who preach, those of us who teach, those of us who are doing these things, we must stand in judgment for the work that we have done. I'm in so much trouble. We have to stand before God and give an account of what we did do and what we didn't do. 
Beloved, it's a hard life being a minister. I shared with Joel and Daniel a letter written by a Presbyterian pastor. Yeah. And it was, his, uh, it was from his blog. And it, he had retired from the church that he was a part of because he was burnt out. The, the, the church life had worn him down and had given up. Now, there were, of course, I think there were issues there. But sadly, <coughs> statistics show us that there's very few pastors ever get past their third to fifth year. They get worn out by the constant nagging, by the constant nipping, by the constant uh, people backbiting and gossiping and second-guessing. And they get worn out, worn down. Their hearts get hardened and embittered and they give up. That's just how things are in real life. Let's call a, a stone a stone, a spade a spade. This is what actually happens. Churches have the ability to kill their pastors. Once I was approached by the Pentecostal Council of Northern Ireland and they offered me a really large Pentecostal church. As a Reformed pastor, remember I told you? I said, guys, I'm a Calvinist. They're like, oh, sure, Kyle, no one will know. No one will know like they will know. And they offered me this church and it's a really big church, 600 people and there was a house with it and a school for the kids and all the rest. Uh, but I know this church. I know it's a pastor-killing church. It's killed its, at that time. It had, it had killed or put out of ministry its last five pastors because the church was full of goats, unredeemed non-Christian members who thought they were Christians and all they did was fight and bicker. It was like the sport, how, how fast can we destroy our pastor? And every man, several of those pastors had been comrades of mine. And they had all given up and left ministry and gone into double glazing salesmen and computer IT guys and all the rest. Never to go behind the pulpit again. Beloved, as church members, you have great power. And with great power comes great responsibility. Spider-Man. My boys love that. You have to care for your leadership as an act of your worship. And again, I'm not saying don't come with criticisms or, or ideas or, hey, accountability issues. Let me keep you up to date. Kyle, let me, uh, whatever I need to say. That's what we're saying here. No blind following this, that we're, we're grown-ups, we're adults. But pray, support, care for, take into consideration the man and his family and their future. Why? Because one day he must stand before... Think if I have to stand before God and say, well, Lord, they were just an absolute, excuse the word, no, I'm not going to say it. They were just an absolute difficult person to pastor. Lord, I did everything I could do, but they just, they were head-button all the time. Lord, they, we sat down with the scriptures, opened them up, Lord. They just wanted their way. Like a spoiled child, like a petulant child. Yeah, why will I want it? Give it to me. Beloved, how embarrassing will that be for you and for me on that day when we must stand before God and give an account of our actions and explain ourselves to the Almighty of why and what, why we did what we did? Obey your leaders and submit to them. And then finally in verse 18 and 19, he deals with prayer. A worshipful church should be a praying church. Privately and collectively. You want to worship God? You want your worship to be seen? Pray. Seek God's face. 
God will give you prayer requests. He will bring issues and problems and difficulties into your life or people into your life who have these difficulties that only God can rescue. And God gives you the opportunity to pray for them that you might pray that He might respond and answer that He might deliver the person or the object of your prayers that He might receive glory that we might acknowledge that He is the true and living God who is able to save. We have prayer requests because God enjoys answering prayer. It brings glory to His name. It acknowledges Him. It gives Him the opportunity to to show His love to you and to me. Beloved, as a worshipful church, we need to be a praying church. There's no excuse why we shouldn't be a praying church. Indeed, one of the indications that a church has stopped being worshipful, it's a backsliding church, is its neglect of prayer. Indeed, if you want to see the, the, the nine marks of a dysfunctional church, turn these objects the other way around. That it's a prayerless church. It's a church where the leadership is under attack and is always in fighting with its members. It's a church that doesn't look after one another. There's no agape love between members. It's a church that doesn't proclaim the free love of Christ through the blood of Christ doesn't preach the gospel in its true and real sense. It has warped the gospel and made something else. And then it goes on. Beloved, are you, are you and I, are we a prayerful church? Are you a prayerful believer? A New Testament Christian? Is your life marked by prayer? He says here, we pray for us. We are convinced that we have a clean conscience, wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. Pray for each other. Pray for yourselves that in this world we might do what is right. Not what is required, but that we might behave in such a way that our conscience are clean before God, that we're not overcome by guilt, that we're not stumbling about in the dark in a blind sense. Well, I think I'm doing what's right. I don't know. I'm just making it up as I go along. The Word of God is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. It instructs us in the way that we are to worship Him. Pray. Church, pray. In order that you might worship God all the more. Remember from the psalm that we read earlier. Show us favor, Lord. Show us favor, Lord. That the mouths of the scoffers, the mockers, the those who would be against the gospel, whether it's internally in yourself or externally in the world, they might be silenced and that God might be magnified and glorified. And then verse 19, just in finishing here, he says, I urge you to pray all the more that I might be restored to you very soon. Uh, Obviously, there was a separation here. We don't know the details. But this man is confident that God will answer the prayers of the church. He's he's not saying pray that that it might be the Lord's will or whatever, whatever. But rather that if you pray, God will answer your prayers. Church, believe in the power of prayer. Believe that God answers your prayers. I have found it that churches...